If you've got a Bible handy, I want to go ahead and have you open to First uh, Peter, the first chapter of First Peter, First Peter one. We're going to be in three through seven in just a, in just a couple minutes here. We'll start off there before we get into uh, Genesis, the twenty-first chapter, where we'll jump back into Abraham. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, so I'm going to dispense with some of the, the typical pre-sermon pleasantries and uh, just ask that we go ahead and, and pray together as we dive into the text. Father in heaven, we were gathered today as, as your people. You've called us together today. And we acknowledge that you have given us your holy word to feed and to equip us. We believe that, Lord, and, and so we implore you today. We, we are begging you to touch our hearts and to shape our minds. We just ask that you would, would feed thirsty souls today with life-giving truth. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let's just dive right in. I want to ask a question at the beginning. Uh, it's a self-assessment kind of question. And I think this is something that we as believers need to be doing in our life regularly. That's why we meet in part, so that we can continue to, to say, who am I in relation to who God is? So a self-assessment question like this for today might be this. How's your faith looking lately? How's your faith looking? Are you doing well? You feeling strong, ready to, you know take on the world. <laughs> Many of us have a definite yes or no kind of response to that. Uh, for some of us, we probably know where we stand in a sense. Uh, for some of us, the answer to that question is uh, yes, I'm feeling good. My faith is strong. For some of us, the answer is no, <laughs> I'm feeling weak. My faith is, 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 is suffering. It's, it's weak lately. For some of you, the answer may be I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I am. You may not know exactly where you stand. But however you answer that kind of question, today's message is going to test your faith. Today's whole entire sermon message is a test for us of faith. It's a way to say, here's who I am, here's how God has brought me to this point, and and here's who I'm meant to become in relation to who God is and the way that he tests the faith of people in Scripture. Uh, We'll look at that with Abraham especially today. But today is going to test your faith. It's about taking stock of of where you really are in your faith in Christ. If you're taking down notes on the inside of the sermon notes there on the worship guide, you may want to write down a couple of these questions to guide your thinking today. You might want to ask yourself these questions at the beginning. Do I really follow God as I claim? Simple question. Am I really in this? Another way to ask this might be to say, am I the genuine article? That's the first couple blanks there on the sermon notes. Am I the genuine article? Am I the the real thing follower of Jesus Christ? That's what a test of faith is all about. So we know where we stand. We know where we are strong and we, we know where we are weak. So that's the message about this genuine article question today. Because we should be asking ourselves openly and honestly, we should be assessing as a part of who we are in our relationship with God, where we are with Christ. Am I the genuine article when it comes to following him? I think this is important, frankly. 
because, because we know this in our lives and the lives of people around us, that a lot of people who say with mouths, they claim Jesus as Lord. I will, I will claim that I love Jesus and follow him, and yet at the same time behave as if my, my ongoing, steady, growing relationship with him is really not a high priority. Let's just call a spade a spade. A lot of folks claiming to love and to follow Jesus, frankly, have some pretty weak faith. So let's call a spade a spade. For example, lots of folks who may claim to follow Christ, <laughs> who, may, who may claim to follow Christ, determine whether they're going to worship God, the God of the universe, on any given Sunday, based on a whole lot of, frankly, ridiculous factors. Ridiculous factors that show where their allegiance really lies. Factors like the weather. The weather needs to be good. Attendance actually goes up. (laughs) This is not something I'm making up. Good weather, better attendance. Or, if I'm not too tired, or if I've got enough internal motivation, if there aren't any better offers on the table for me, and if it's anything other than that same series we've been going through for the last 30 weeks, uh, if, if I like the preacher, or if I like the music, or if I, if I, if I. Weak faith. Really, that's weak faith. <laughs> weak faith that shows that we've placed trust in ourselves, or people in a way that is not God. Some people determine whether they're going to grow spiritually in their walk with God and stick in that hard place of becoming who he's made us to be based on a whole host, again, of ridiculous factors like if one of my friends is doing it too, or or only if it sounds like an interesting topic or class to me, only if it sounds interesting to me, Only if in that place you're not going to ask something of me that requires something, or or only if it fits into my already busy with all of my own priorities kind of schedule, only if, only if, only if. Weak faith. So so ask yourself at the beginning, am I the real deal? (laughs) Or am I doing this for some reason other than because of my allegiance and devotion to Jesus Christ alone, first and foremost. You need to test yourself. It's part of the Christian life. We see it in a bunch of places in Scripture. It's not a new idea. I'm not, I'm not saying all of a sudden Scott Wakefield has determined in Revelation from God that testing of faith is important. It's all over the Scriptures. Job was tested like no one will ever know. Abraham as well, as we'll see today. David was tested. Jesus was tested. The disciples were tested. In fact, write this down if you're taking notes. Bank on it. If you follow God, you will be tested. If you claim to follow Christ and want to be in that place where he's got you growing to become who he's made you to be, as one who is fruitful and multiplies, as we know from the beginning of Genesis, if he's got you in that place of growth, you will be tested. It's just, it's just a fact, fact of the Christian life. Testing, by the way, is not the same as temptation. God tests, but he does not tempt. Satan tempts. We can talk about that at another sermon, but uh, 
But, but this idea of testing is something, and this is the next blank in the outline here, to test something is to examine it to find out its value. It's to examine something to find out something's value, its, its worth. It was a term that was often used in determining the purity or the quality of a metal or of coins. You tested it to see how much it was worth, to see if it was the genuine article, to see if it was real, if it held the value it claimed on the outside of the coin. You test it to know if it's the real thing. It's like any test we, we go through in life. It's to find out where we stand. We take a driving test to find out if you deserve to have the keys. You take a medical board exam to find out if you're ready to take on the job as a doctor. This is about assessing your readiness to do what God's called you to do. Now, God wants us to know where we stand with him. That's part of this testing thing. He wants us to test ourselves to see whether we're ready to do whatever he wants us to do, whatever he asks, however he has called us to grow. Second Corinthians 13:5, in fact, says, it commands it, it says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Psalm 139, 23 and 4 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Know where I stand. Try me. It's the same word as test. Try me and know my thoughts. Show me, Lord, where I stand. The next verse tells us what we gain from this testing, knowing where we lack so that we can grow stronger, verse 24, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. James 1, 2, and 3. James 1, 2, and 3 tells us that tests of faith are a normal part of the Christian life. Don't be surprised by them. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, tests of various kinds. Not if, but, but when. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, perseverance, long-haul, stick it in for the long-haul kind of faith. You're going to have trials. You're going to have tests. It will happen. Bank on it. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. I think for some reason a lot of us still are surprised by it. And that, and that, and that in part determines how we respond. Like, like, what is going on here, Lord? I, I, this, isn't, this isn't what I, I thought this was going to be about. 1 Peter 1, 3-7 is an awesome passage about this testing thing. Uh, we're going to camp out here for just a second. So I asked you to, to turn to it uh, for just a second here. 1 Peter 1, 3-7. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a declaration of praise. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's a great phrase. Born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable to an inheritance that, that won't die, that is undefiled, it's, it's pure, it's, it's unfading, it stays strong. It's kept in heaven for you, it says. As in right now, it's kept in heaven. It's, it's waiting for you. It's waiting for you 
who by God's power, verse 5, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6 says, in this, that is in that future inheritance that is kept for us, that future inheritance that is guarded by faith, you rejoice. In this future inheritance you rejoice now, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness... It's a great phrase. If you're a circler like me, test, tested genuous is worth, uh, is worth circling there. So that the tested genuineness, the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though that is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God tests us to fit us, to ready us to be in his presence. Peter was the one who wrote these words in uh, 1 Peter. But that, that tested genuineness that he just talked about there, that didn't come easily for Peter. It didn't come easily, and it shouldn't come easily for anybody. We're talking about being in the presence of holy, perfect, sinless God. Not easy. In fact, impossible. Remember he had told uh, Jesus, Peter had told Jesus in Matthew and in other places too, but, but unlike all of the others, in Matthew 26 he says, unlike all of the others of your followers, I will not fall away. This is Peter speaking to Jesus. He was sure that he was ready. <laughs> but Jesus knew that he was to be tested and that he would fail, in fact. Peter would betray Jesus three times while Jesus is on trial, suffering for the sake of Peter. And so when it, was, when it was crunch time, Peter folded hard. As, as Jesus was in the room, being persecuted and on trial. Later on, after the resurrection and the appearance to the disciples, Jesus followed up, and he asked Peter the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me still more than these other disciples, is what he's saying? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus wasn't playing around and pandering to people. He cuts to the heart of the matter and asks the follow-up question to Peter, who he knew folded. He knew he would fold, but he also knew he needed strength to carry on the mission Jesus was calling him to. And so he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know. You know that I love you. And so Jesus then at that point says, well, then feed my sheep. Then, then go carry on the work. The testing had to happen if Peter was going to become who Jesus called him to be. You're not going to get there. You're not going to become the mature, ready-for-the-fire kind of believer if tests are not part of your life. So strangely, Scripture gives us the admission to embrace those tests. Embrace them. How do we get ready for that? Jesus is telling Peter, okay, if you love me, then show it by feeding my sheep. In other words, your actions must show that what you say is true. He's saying to Peter and to us, if you love me, then prove it. So look at Genesis, the 21st chapter. This is the beginning of where Abraham is tested big time. Genesis 21. 
God is saying here to, to Abraham, and we'll get into chapter 22 in just a second, but he's saying to Abraham, starting in chapter 21, if you love me, Abraham, then prove it. If you have faith in me, show it. Let's read together Genesis 21. We're going to focus on those first eight verses. We're not going through the rest of it, but just 21, 1 through 8, as a background for the test in Genesis 22. These first few verses here will highlight uh, God's faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah. And they even, even here as early as Genesis 21, set the stage for Isaac, Abraham's son, being a type of Christ. Verse 1 says this, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, as God had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now remember, God had promised, of course, a, a son to Abraham and Sarah. So Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son, in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. So, this is a supernatural birth. In other words, God had to do this to make it happen. It wasn't physically possible for Abraham and Sarah in their old age to create babies. In fact, Sarah never has been able to to this point. So an interesting note, even at the beginning here, the conception of Jesus isn't the first supernatural, it's not the first intervention of God in that way to impregnate a woman. Remember last week we talked about how crazy the, the plan of God is, that that sinful mankind, that sinful humanity would rebel against God, and yet from that same line of sinful people came a perfect, sinless Jesus. That's a crazy plan. Perfect God, born of the Spirit first, he, he, he was always existing as God, but came in the form of humanity, born of a woman miraculously. Crazy plan. So God makes his plan happen, even here with Abraham and Sarah, by, by supernaturally impregnating a woman who has never born children and is too old to. So it's not whether or not God's plan is going to happen. It will. Redemption will occur. His, history is directed toward that. The question is whether or not we are going to join with him in that work. And testing is part of how we learn to join with him, like it or not. Verses 3 and 4. These highlight Abraham's faithfulness. It says, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Remember, God told them they would name him Isaac, which means he laughs. And, of course, God gets the last laugh here. Verse 4, and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Circumcision was, was the sign of joining with God's plan. It was the outward sign of, of joining with God's covenant plan. It was commanded this previously in Genesis 17. So verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. God had promised them a son in their old age as part of his covenant, as his promise to Abraham to bless him. Now remember, this goes back to chapter 12, uh, where it says, I will make of you a great nation. And, and I, will, I will bless you, I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. That's the beginning of the covenant promise told to Abraham. But Abraham is 75 
years old when he hears that. This is 25 years later. God had been repeating this promise to him chapter after chapter. In fact, it's in 15, 16, 17, and 18, all along the way for 25 years. But Abraham and Sarah have been waiting a long time, waiting a long time. So, so the scene is this. Can, can, can you imagine being told by God that you were going to become a great, a great nation and you've waited childless for 25 years. So it happens. The son comes. Isaac is born. So, so after this long wait and, the, and these grand promises of God, Abraham has his son for which he waited a long time, and then this happens. Genesis 22. Scripture has a way of jarring us to test faith. Turn to Genesis 22, verse 1, where we see that God tests Abraham in the most difficult possible way you could imagine for someone who had been told this grand promise and yet who's been waiting, has the son and obviously loves this son. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now let's just park there for a second. After these things, God tested Abraham. It says that after these things that happened. In other words, a good long while has passed since Isaac was born. We don't know how old he was. But we know he was old enough to talk and to ask a perceptive question later on in the text. The important part to know is this. Isaac's been around a while. Isaac's been around as a part of this family for a while. They've, they've probably gotten used to his, his quirks. You know, all parents talk about their kids like this. Like, like Abraham probably said something like, I'm glad that, that Isaac got some of your good looks, Sarah. And she probably said to him, that wry little smile he does when he's about to do something a little bit devious, that comes from you, Abraham. You know, all parents sit around and they talk about that kind of thing with their kids. Oh, he, he got that from you, or, or she looks like me, or, or things like that. Some time had passed, and they are madly and deeply in love with this boy. And then God tests Abraham. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He just says, here I am. His answer before he knows what the test is communicates readiness and humility to do whatever he asks. He just says, here I am. Okay, Lord, what do you want? Verse 2, he said, take your son. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Your only son, the, 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 mono, the only gene of your lineage. God knows this is going to hurt. He says, take your only son whom you love. He knows that, that Abraham and Sarah are, are deeply and, and madly in love with this precious little life they've been given. And then it says, go. That word go again creeping up in, in Abraham's life, go to the land of Moriah. Now, the only other reference we have to this land of Moriah is a Mount Moriah in Second Chronicles 3. That's where King Solomon builds the temple. It's a temple mount. So this is probably Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem. 
In fact, some think, and here's that type of Christ thing coming in, some think that this is the, the, the same basic place which later becomes Mount Calvary. So, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham knew that a burnt offering meant the entire sacrifice was to be consumed by fire. Leviticus 1 says to offer all of it, it says, when it instructs about burnt offerings. In other words, all of the meat is burned up. In other offerings, some of the good portions can go to the priests. Some of the leftovers can go to the priests. But with a burnt offering, there is nothing left. All of it goes to God. And Abraham knew clearly what God was asking him. In fact, those, those words, burnt offering, are significant. Uh, about, about 200 years uh, before Christ's first coming. When Jewish scholars were translating uh, the Hebrew of the Old Testament into Greek, they used two words for burnt offering. They used halos, which means whole, and kostos, which means burnt, to describe the kind of offering. It was entirely burned. When Hitler gassed and burned the bodies of, of millions of Jews, the Jews used this same word to describe what happened. Holocaust. Now, now I'm not sure how you would respond, but that I know for me about three seconds in, uh, before the real shock of the request had time to even sink in, I would burst out with something like, you want me to what, Lord? You offer me this, this promise, this blessing that you've promised for my family, and this is how you carry out your plan? But Abraham apparently just says, okay. There is no hesitation apparent in his response. He is faithfully prepared to do whatever God asks. In fact, I think Abraham thinks, <laughs> Abraham thought God will deliver my son Isaac somehow. We'll see that in the text, so let's keep working through it. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. He just, he just gets up the next morning, saddles his donkey, makes preparations, takes two of his, men, his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, in other words, it took about two days of walking to get there. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy, both of them. 
stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's significant. He says, both of us will go over there and worship, and both of us will come back. The grammatical construction here in uh, verse 5, where it says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you, is, is a grammatical instruction that's a linkage of, of ands. And that means the first phrase, I and the boy, applies to everything that follows. So I and the boy, both of us will go there, both will worship, both will come again to you. I think Abraham's faith is strong enough that he thinks, perhaps, that God will not force him to kill his son Isaac. And even if he does, he will deliver him somehow because he's made the promise. Let's keep looking at that. Now, using the principle here that, that, that Scripture interprets Scripture, that's an important one to know if, you, if you've never heard that. Scripture interprets Scripture. We're going to turn to uh, Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 for just a second here. Because Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 sheds some light on what's going on here in Genesis, the 22nd chapter. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. It says, By faith Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, that's, that's Abraham, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, that is, that Abraham thought, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So he considered that God, even if he was asking him to go through with it, would somehow provide. That's a lot of faith. Keep reading here in uh, Genesis, the 22nd chapter again, verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac, who who apparently sees that something is wrong, he said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here am I, my son. Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham, verse 8, says, And remember, He's willing to go through, but he also believes that God will deliver him somehow. Abraham says, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb. What an awesome foreshadowing of the cross of Christ. 1600 or so years before Christ the Lamb is slain, here is a faithful man who has promised a son from whom would come that same land, who is picturing for us, even today as we read in Genesis, how God would provide a sacrifice for us. It gets even better. Read on verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. That word slaughter is used to describe how Jesus, the lamb, is is led to the slaughter in Isaiah 53. Isaac here is clearly prefiguring. He's, He's clearly a type of Christ 
in that we hear no protest. There is no protest from young Isaac that we know of here. So verse 11, but the angel of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord, that that phrase angel of the Lord, at least means the authoritative words of God spoken through an angel and might also be a pre-body, a pre-incarnate Christ. Whatever the case here, God is speaking through this angel or perhaps prefigured Christ. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Your only son. Same kind of phrase used in John 3.16. Earlier on here in the passage, Abraham had passed the test. His faith was the real deal. Abraham was the genuine article because his faith resulted in obedience his faith resulted in obedience there's a question that that often arises when we read this kind of passage that 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 people think about there's a big question that always comes up and that, that that question is why why would God even ask Abraham to sacrifice his own son? Especially when in Scripture itself there are ten places that speak against human sacrifice, which was common in the pagan religions of the day. Why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Here's why. To show that he is altogether different than the small g pagan gods of the day. To show that he is the real deal. You see, logic lesson here for a second. If God knew, if God knew that Abraham wouldn't actually end up sacrificing Isaac, which we know is the case because he sends an angel to stop him, then God never intended for Abraham to actually sacrifice him. It was a test. So, so, so contrary to the, the pagan religions of the day, which often demanded a bloody self-sacrifice to appease the gods, this is a God who sacrifices himself. This is here not to show us just that, that Abraham had faith or that Isaac obeyed his father and didn't protest. It's here to show us that God is the real deal. This is a God who sacrifices himself. Substitutionary atonement is the fancy word for it. If you're a note taker, write down Genesis 22 equals substitutionary atonement. It's just a fancy way to say that Christ died for you. That God sends himself to us to do what no one could. Look at verses 13 and 14. We'll wrap up here with this. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. 
as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And as a result, as a result of Abraham's faith, which was lived out in response to God's faithfulness to him, God renewed, he said again his covenant, verses 15 to 18, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, there's that phrase again, I will surely bless you, I will certainly bless you, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice God is saying I will most certainly do this you can bank on it in fact you can live now in faith like that's already happened you can live now in faith like that's already happened. That's the inheritance kept in heaven for us, First Peter talks about. We read of the awesome faith of someone like Abraham. And one of our first responses is, Thank you, Lord, for never demanding something like that from me. It's a natural way to respond. Thank you, Lord, for never demanding something like that from me. But here's the problem. We use that principle that our faithfulness to God doesn't depend on something as as radical as sacrifice of a child to rationalize the idea that God demands nothing from us. That's the test. We, we, we use that principle that, that faithfulness to God doesn't require something as radical as sacrifice of a child. We use that principle to, to rationalize for ourselves the idea that God demands little to nothing from us. When in fact he's called us all to be Isaacs. A lot of A lot of people who say, I follow Jesus, I love Christ, rationalize their own inactive faith by taking advantage of grace to rationalize that. Lord, forgive us for living lives that are all about us. Where we've, where we've rationalized our fears and our inactivity. Lord, we are, we are so grateful that we live this side of the cross, that we have seen the Lamb slain for our sins. Save us, Lord, from weak, selfish faith that squeezes as much license as we can out of grace. Instead of living self-sacrificing lives. Lord, bolster our faith with hope in your power to accomplish your glory. 
Lord, you ask for it all, so make us people who are willing, like Abraham and like Isaac, to be dead to ourselves so that we can know the immeasurable joy of life lived for you. Equip us for that, Lord. Amen.